0: There are a significant number of students here who are really advocating and want to be affiliated with uh, organizations in their future that are dedicating themselves to being purpose-driven, mission-focused, um, you know, caring about society and, and sustainability and diversity, equity, and inclusion. And those things matter. And what we're finding is that students are walking the talk and are making different choices about where they want to be employed if they are finding resistance or lack of progress in companies that they might have considered 10 years ago, but they don't see those companies as as moving the needle in some of these societal issues. They're choosing not to work in those. From C Street a strategic advisory firm helping CEOs and C-suites achieve maximum value, this is Word on the C-Street, a show where influential leaders reflect on the value of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and share their perspectives on the defining challenges and opportunities of our time.
1: Hi, I'm John Hennis, founder and CEO of C-Street Advisory Group. Welcome to Word on the C-Street, On today's episode, I'll be speaking with Erica James, Dean of Wharton, one of the nation's premier business schools. Erica discusses the mindset shift that helped her fully embrace her role as the first woman and first person of color to lead Wharton, the infrastructure needed to help companies diversify their talent pipelines, and the grounding mechanism leaders can use to determine whether to speak out on a societal issue. Prior to becoming dean of Wharton, your academic experience was studying effective leadership in times of crises. Today, CEOs are facing crises all the time, social justice issues, whether it's guns or Roe v. Wade, DEI, whatever it may be. How do you see the role of corporations in responding to these issues?
0: So corporations are significant influencers in society, and the actions they take, the decisions they make, the communications they have will draw attention either positively or negatively. And so when I'm counseling executives, I often ask them to ask themselves, why? Why is this an issue that's important for me or my company to be affiliated with? And if they don't have a clear answer, then I think the cautionary approach would be probably to not say anything, because people are gonna take anything that you say as representative of the organization's stance. And one thing that it's easy to lose sight of is that as representatives or agents of our enterprises, we are responsible for the variety of opinions and beliefs that exist within the organization. And so going down one pathway might be advantageous for aligning some of your employees and staff members, but it might be off-putting to others or to a different set of external stakeholders. So I think really understanding why you're connecting your company with this particular issue uh, is, has got to be the grounding mechanism for determining whether, when, or how often to speak out on issues.
1: Do you think there's any issues that CEOs should speak out on, even if they know there may be some stakeholders that they have that are going to be upset?
0: I think that's a very specific question that each individual executive or company would need to address. And I think it's also dependent on the nature of the business that they're in. So for some businesses, there may be such alignment between a societal issue and what their goals and values and purpose is that they have no choice but to speak out. But for other issues, I think it might not make sense for a particular company because it is far afield from the work or the connectivity that they have. So I I think it's an individual determination as to whether or not to align yourself with an issue.
1: Do you find that the students at Wharton um, are pushing in class for corporations and CEOs to speak out on social issues?
0: Yes and no. So one of the great surprises when I came to Wharton was I had spent some time in the interview process. I'd learned everything that I could about Wharton from sort of public domain, public information, but it's not until you're here and embedded into the environment really get a feel for the people and what matters to them. And one of the surprises to me was that Wharton students are much more diverse, not only race, gender, ethnicity, uh, but also in terms of how they think about the world. Mm -hmm. And whereas some people might think of the Wharton student as being a traditionally conservative group um they're actually they run the gamut of how they think about society and societal issues and there are a significant number of students here who are really advocating and want to be affiliated with uh organizations in their future that are dedicating themselves to being purpose driven mission focused um you know, caring about society and and sustainability and diversity, equity, and inclusion, and those things matter. And what we're finding is that students are walking the talk and are making different choices about where they want to be employed if they are finding resistance or lack of progress in companies that they might have considered 10 years ago, but they don't see those companies as, as moving the needle in some of these societal issues. They're choosing not to work in those industries.
1: So one of the things we're finding uh, when we're talking to companies is they're often talking about their pipeline and of getting the new employees in. Are you hearing from leaders at major companies to say, how do we do better at our companies to be able to get your students to want to come to us?
0: Absolutely. I think that most executives realize there's a lack of information and a lack of infrastructure to support the kinds of changes that are needed to create um, the pipelines that they're looking for. And the best executives and the best companies are willing to be vulnerable and ask for help and ask for support and say, help guide us, help us understand what we can and should be doing differently. and That may be different from the set of companies that have allocated, you know, tens of millions or hundreds of million dollars to to diversity work. That's, That's a very showy thing that one can do, but it's really what's behind those financial investments that will really make change. So I think many, many companies increasingly are dedicated to really wanting to do the right thing, but don't know how. And that's where I think a school like Wharton or other business schools who are apolitical in this, who are guided by research and data and empirical evidence to to help them know these are the strategies that work, these are the strategies that don't work, here are the things that you're doing that you think are effective, but here's why they're not, et cetera. And building those kinds of partnerships with entities like academic institutions I think can really help move the needle for what they're trying to achieve.
1: Do you have any of those initiatives set up now here at Wharton?
0: Yes, we're launching something called the Coalition for Equity and Opportunity, which is intended to really create partnerships where we can leverage what we do best, which is the empirical research and the thought leadership grounded in data, Mm -hmm. to help guide companies whose values are aligned with ours and are really trying to make a difference to create access and opportunity for folks who might not have access to health care folks who might not have equal access to educational opportunities folks who don't have access to venture capital funding because they're not in the right communities for where that is supported folks who are frustrated or stymied in their careers because their organizations don't have the right infrastructure in place to support diverse talent both in retaining them but also in helping them to advance and our our faculty and our thought leadership can help address some of those issues Uh, i'll give you just one example so we've been partnering in the alternative uh, investment space Mm -hmm. with three companies aries oak tree and apollo okay and what they've realized is we don't have a pipeline to attract diverse talent into this industry and we would like to become more diverse ourselves so how do we do that And so we've launched this initiative called Alt Finance, which partners with HBCUs, some of whom don't have business schools. Mm -hmm. So you're already taking out of the market really talented, educated black students or students of color because you don't have the academic content to support them going into these industries. Well, Wharton can provide the academic content by helping train Uh, their faculty and working with students directly on what it means to be in the alternative space so that they get that kind of exposure and then can become part of a pipeline into that particular industry. So that would be a coalition of HBCUs, the Wharton School, alternative investment companies, and others to make change.
1: Yeah, no, I I love that you're bringing all those different parties together, which is so important, right? I want to talk a little bit about you uh, and and your journey, right? Mm -hmm. So you are... You were the first woman dean of Wharton, first black dean of Wharton, so obviously the first black woman dean of Wharton. What was that like for you coming in here?
0: Well, it unfortunately wasn't the first time i find myself in that experience. So prior to being dean at Wharton, I was also dean at the Goizueta Business School at Emory University. And at that point, I was the first black woman to be dean there, but also to be dean of a top 25-ranked business school and so that was my first realization of how important my being in that role was to the people who were watching and the people whose vision of what they themselves could aspire to meant and then fast forward and and I find myself now at a school like Wharton which is has even more visibility and high profile the the impact of my presence here matters a lot and it matters not only to young women or to students of color but it matters to to white men who want to be affiliated and and associated with organizations who are really demonstrating progress and commitment to diversity equity and inclusion if i'm being completely candid there was a time in my life where i would have expect where i would have feared that my being appointed to these roles was a function of them wanting to just find diverse talent and not really believing that I had the wherewithal to be able to lead organizations of this nature. And then after a year or two leading Emory's Business School, I realized no one's going to put someone in this role if they don't believe they can actually do the job. And that was a very empowering realization for me, and it helped me to – changed my mind frame from questioning why I'm here and you know the proverbial imposter syndrome to really believing I'm here because I have what's necessary to advance this institution at this point in time and that's been very freeing and liberating and I think as I've gained more confidence in these roles I am a more effective leader and therefore I can also help um those who are observing and watching me in this role, I can give them something more meaningful to hold on to as they're trying to navigate Mm -hmm. their own career trajectories.
1: That was such a powerful response.
0: Earlier this morning, I was at a coffee shop on campus, and there were probably 50 young women there. And I asked them, what group are you with? And they said, we're part of Girls Who Invest. And I I noticed a group of two women who kept staring at me and whispering. And I know they were thinking, is that the Wharton School dean? And they sort of gathered up the wherewithal to come and approach me and introduce themselves. And they're Wharton students who are also part of Girls Who Invest. And they both wanted to say part of what mattered to them about choosing Wharton over other schools was that I was here in this role. And they wanted to be a part of that, and and that's not certainly anything that I had expected coming into this position, but I hear those kinds of stories all the time, and when people say representation matters, I feel acutely how how it does now. Mm -hmm.
1: You look at the long line at most business schools of just the white men, you're getting one experience, one focus, coming in with your experience, your background, and you're already talking about changes to keep up with what's going on in in corporate America. I want to hear about when you were growing up what was that journey
0: yeah so i was actually i was born in bermuda i am a u.s citizen and my parents are both u.s citizens but they happened to be living in bermuda at the time that i was born and at the time my parents were married shortly thereafter they were divorced and both of them remarried so my my biological parents are both african-american but each of them when they divorced and remarried someone else both of them remarried outside of their race and outside of their faith. So I ended up being raised by my mother, black woman, and my stepfather, a Jewish white man, in the south in, in Texas. And when I would visit my father in the summers, he had remarried a white woman who was Irish Catholic in central Michigan in a very, very tiny town. And so whenever I would come to visit, I'd literally doubled the black population there. So I I share that with you because I think those experiences of growing up in sort of biracial, bi-faith families um, were very informative in terms of just how I saw the world Mm -hmm. and what I needed to navigate in order to find success either academically or professionally. And, And leveraging my, over the years, familiarity with operating in different environments I think was really pivotal. My stepfather was a clinical psychologist. I was always intrigued by the work that he did and thought that I would follow in his footsteps. And so I majored in in psychology in college, but quickly realized that there's more than just clinical psychology. And I was introduced to this field of organizational Mm -hmm. psychology, which is basically the study of human behavior in an organizational context, which I found so practical and compelling. I thought that I would get a job after college and quickly realized I wasn't sure what kind of job you got with an undergraduate degree in psychology so I prolonged that decision by going to graduate school and getting a a PhD in organizational psychology but didn't appreciate at the time that the PhD degree was really a degree preparing you to go into the academy and be a faculty member and do research and teach and so I took some time off while I was in graduate school to go work for American Express and just sort of get a feel for what I might leave behind if I pursued an academic career. And while I had a very positive experience, particularly with American Express, I realized I liked the academic career allowed me to do, which was think of interesting questions, uh, collect data, analyze that data, and use that to understand why organizations operate the way they do, and then potentially make, make change from that basis. And so journeyed into academic life. My first job was a faculty member at Tulane University, and just sort of went through that trajectory. I never imagined that I would be dean. It was not a career pathway that I was pursuing, but as opportunities presented themselves, and uh, I eventually said yes to different ways, people began to observe that I had a a skill for administration and leadership, Mm -hmm. and so That's what sort of fostered the introduction to administrative leadership and dean work.
1: What do you think the most important qualities for a leader
0: are? When I think about the people that work with me and when I have to do performance reviews, I always ground them in sort of three aspects of trust. The first is competence-based trust. Do you have the wherewithal and skill to actually do the job that you've been hired to do. Communication based trust, can I trust what you say? Are you transparent? Are you honest? Can you maintain confidences when need be, etc. And then what, what I refer to is contractual based trust, which is follow through. Do you do what you say you're going to yeah. do? And so I think for any leader, if you are able to demonstrate those three characteristics not only that's what I look for in people that work with me but that's what I expect of myself I think those three are for me foundational to what it means to be a good leader and that if you demonstrate that then there is integrity to everything that you do
1: so young people today Mm -hmm. they they have very strong opinions Mm -hmm. they are happy to speak out about those opinions and one of the big things is bringing your authentic self to work and I think that's great, but then there are times where I'll look at it and say, well, there's your authentic self, and then there's your walking into a client, and mm-hmm. how the client's going to look at you. How do you look at that?
0: So it's such a great question, and I remember years ago um, teaching a classroom, and something like this conversation came up, and I think the way to think about it is companies operate within a continuum of, of acceptable behavior, right? and and That continuum is based on stakeholders that they are beholden to, whether it's clients, whether it's shareholders, et cetera. And yet you want to create an environment that allows people to be their best selves. And when you are authentic and vulnerable, or or have the opportunity to to be vulnerable, that's oftentimes when you can be your best self. And so the question is, how wide can companies expand what is acceptable mm-hmm. um, in terms of the culture that they're trying to create and the norms of professionalization as they choose to describe them. How, how expansive can they be to allow for the, the people coming in who want to be more expressive and who want to be more authentic? Mm-hmm. So when that band is narrow, That just means you're going to miss out on a lot of other talent. But as you expand that band, you also have to recognize that that comes with additional risks. And part of the responsibility of the company is to communicate to your stakeholders why this person is in your organization and the value that they're bringing. And make the call if your your client or stakeholder agrees and is comfortable with that then that's a win-win and if they're not you you make the call which which do you value do you value the employee base you're trying to create or do you value and and that's a trade-off and i'm not putting judgment on that that is a trade-off that leaders have to make it sure. so but I, I oftentimes think the more that we can start to expand that continuum of acceptable norms yes. within the organization the more you're likely to get a wider swath of diverse talent
1: is, I see two different things here. One is I, I think that organizations allowing people to be who they are is so critical, right? I mean, that is how you are going to get that mm-hmm. that great decision-making, that great thought. I say all the time, we'll have our 22- or 23-year-old employees, and I learn from them every day. different things, and, um, and I'm willing to listen. And so we have a policy of everybody's voice is it is being heard. I think there's also, though, the second part, which is is where I find the challenge is to be like, be yourself, be you. But instead of wearing a t-shirt to a meeting, you could put on a button down. Well,
0: but I also think the responsibility is on sort of, in this case, the young person, right, to decide, do I want to make these changes for this experience? And he or she may say, yes, I do. And I'm willing to adapt, adapt some of myself uh, for this. And then in other cases, they might say, I'm not willing to Sacrifice this part of my identity, and so I'm not going to do that. And yeah. so, both parties have have some responsibility in all of this. And I think as long as you are very clear with yourself and with the people that you're engaging with, you know, it's it's a trade off.
1: What advice would you give to your young self?
0: So, a couple of years ago, when I was appointed dean at Wharton, and someone asked me this question, and I. I said something that just sort of blurted out and in hindsight I reflect on I wish that I had been told this myself and and that's this notion of bet on yourself. Like I spent so much time doubting myself and second-guessing myself whether it was in school and academic situations or whether it was in early jobs and that energy would have been put to such better use if I had just assumed that I would fi- even if it were things that I didn't know, I would figure it out and I would just bet on myself to sort of take the risks necessary to try something new, experiment, learn. So I think I wasted a lot of time and energy in self-doubt. I'm probably not alone yeah. in that regard. And so the more I can convince myself and others to just bet on yourself, you, you more than anyone don't want you to fail so you will figure it out i think that's the advice that i wish i had, had 30 years ago
1: i think it's great advice because I, I do think so much of the limitations that people have they place them on themselves, on themselves. yes 100 all right i want to jump so we ask every every guest these questions tell me about something that's been on your mind lately anything that you've been hooked on
0: so it is a book. It's a book that I am writing and publishing this fall, called "The Prepared Leader," and it's on my mind because we're at the very final stages with you know the proofreading and the so it it is consuming uh, for me. It's with my co-author Lynn Wooten, his president at Simmons University, and we started this pre-pandemic, and it was intended to be a follow-up to our first book called "Leading Under Pressure," and. Four or five months into starting this book, the pandemic hit, it caused us to really refocus what is the message that we want to say to leaders about how to be prepared for anything as we're all around the world living through something that none of us had expected or prepared for. So that's that's top of mind for me right now.
1: Give us a hot take. What's something you believe that a lot of people would disagree with?
0: This is a scary question, but I, given the circumstances that we're in, but I would say... Right now, there's so much focus on flexible work arrangements. And I understand why. And there, has been, there have been many proof points over the past two years that people can work effectively from a variety of, of settings. My personal experience was I started a new job at the height of the pandemic and spent the first almost year working remotely with people I had never met having not stepped foot on the grounds of the organization that I'm leading. And I have been thirsty for in-person social interaction at work because, for me, that's what makes work, and I'm using quotation marks for the listeners, that's what makes the hard work of this job fun is when I can share the experience with people on a day-to-day basis, which just, in my experience, doesn't feel the same when you're operating remotely. So the hot take for me is... While I understand work can be done remotely, I personally really value the in person experience and hope that we don't lose all of that altogether over
1: time. Lastly, who's someone you'd love to hear as a guest on Word on the C Street?
0: Ooh. Oh, well, (laughs) so I am going to see Lynn Manuel Miranda on Friday. And he is someone that I could listen to and watch all of the time, regardless of whether it's one of his shows or just how he thinks about the world. Such a creative genius that I would love to hear him on
1: C we, Street. We, we would, too. So. <laughs> all right, well, thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Thanks for listening to Word on the C Street. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, leave a review, and share with friends. You can reach us at info at and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at CStreet underscore